Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. When you were growing up, was there a housekeeper to help your mother with cooking, cleaning, laundry, and such? Or was your mother the help at someone else's house? On this week's episode, we're taking a long look at both sides of that coin. First, we'll tour the Kemper Williams residence at the historic New Orleans collection, where decorative arts curator Lydia Blackmore tells the story of seven New Orleanians who served General Williams and his wife Leela there at their French Quarter home during the 1950s and 60s. And then we'll hear from the late Dr. Rudy Lombard, whose mother was a housekeeper during that same period at an opulent uptown home in New Orleans. Rudy's childhood experiences played a part in leading him to the 1960 McCrory's lunch counter sit-in on Canal Street, which eventually brought about Lombard versus Louisiana, the 1963 Supreme Court decision ending segregation in dining establishments. Then, we'll travel north to explore the life of servants at the White House. We're paying tribute to the untold stories of lives spent in service, those often referred to as the help on this week's Louisiana Eats. I am Lydia Blackmore. I am the Decorative Arts Curator at the Historic New Orleans Collection. And as part of the Decorative Arts, I am in charge of the Williams Residence, which is the historic home of Kemper and Leela Williams, the founders of the Historic New Orleans Collection. At the heart of the Historic New Orleans Collection is the Williams Residence, a house museum that allows visitors to experience life as the general and his wife Leela lived it there for decades. Lydia Blackmore is the first decorative arts curator the collection has ever had. As Lydia researched life at the residence, she learned the story of the employees who made the Kemper Williams life of privilege possible. It was then that she decided it was time their stories were told. To begin our tour, Lydia gave us some background on how the Williams family acquired the house back in the 30s. So the Williamses purchased this property in the heart of the French Quarter in 1938, right here on Royal Street. During World War II, General Williams was stationed in Georgetown as part of his military duties. But during that time, Leela was working with her architect and designers to turn this French Quarter residence into their mid-century modern home. When the Williamses returned from the war, they made this their primary residence, living here from 1946 to 1964. Um, and it was quite unusual for them to choose to live here in the French Quarter. They were both um, Anglo-American, very wealthy, part of New Orleans society, you know, the type of people you find in the Garden District. Um, and they chose to live here in the French Quarter because they were passionate about preserving the history and architecture of New Orleans. 
So as part of their mission to share their passion for preservation, they regularly hosted um, entertainment or formal dinners here at their home in the French Quarter. They formally entertained about three times a week while they were in residence. And that's a formal dinner, black tie, evening gown, multiple courses, drinks, of course, beforehand and probably afterwards here in their dining room right off of Royal Street. Normally, the tour of the Williams residence starts in the Williams's living room because we are talking about the Williamses. But since we are talking about the people who worked for the Williamses, we are starting our tour at the back of the house in the kitchen. Lydia, tell us about Lillian and Bernice, the things you know about them, because so often those New Orleans cooks, the ones who were in the back of the house putting out those beautiful New Orleans style meals, they lived lives very separate and yet their tables were often sometimes the same when it came to the food. They were very talented cooks. What do you know about them? So that's actually been one of the major challenges of adding this interpretation to the Williams residence because most of what we know about the Williams's employees come from the documentation that we have from the Williamses. So we have General Williams's diary, we have different letters and things that have been written, and then also starting in 1953 we have all of the Social Security employment records. So that gives the basic. It gives the name, date of birth, Social Security number, um, an address and what their employees were being paid. So that's how we've been able to track who was working here in the Williams residence. From that, I went through other documents that the Williamses had to find any reference to them. And I also spent a lot of time on Ancestry.com trying to comb through New Orleans city directories, census records, anything I could find um, to document these people. Luckily, I had their social security numbers, so sometimes you can find the social security record for them, but um, it's always more of a challenge to research African-American history, as almost every one of these employees was African-American. Um, and it's even harder to research African-American women history because as names change and records get lost, um, it's hard to trace that. So I don't know as much about them as I would like to know. I do know that they were both native Louisianans, um, that they moved around quite often here in New Orleans. They probably didn't own their homes. Both of them uh, were married. Lillian actually got married while she was working for the Williamses. So she started as Lillian Anderson and ended as Lillian Moore. Um, so she got married while she was working here. Um, Bernice Williams was married before she started working for the, for the Williamses, like, no relation, <laughs> again, no relation between Lillian Moore and Leela Moore Williams either. It just happens that they have the same names. Um, Lillian and Bernice both became very highly skilled employees of the Williamses. They were uh, the highest paid female employees of the Williamses. So um, by the end of her career, Bernice was being paid the exact same amount as the butler, who was a man. So 
Of course, there's always wage disparity. There's a wage disparity between black and white workers. There's a wage disparity between female and male workers, and especially a wage disparity between African-American female workers and uh, white male workers. So the fact that Bernice was getting paid the same as the butler shows how important she was to the Williams's household. Butler's Pantry, located just off the kitchen, continues the mid-century mint green color theme. Built-in cabinets and shelving display a treasure trove of dinnerware, barware, and other serving accessories, looking just as if Lawrence the Butler was about to mix up a martini for the general. So um, now we are in the Butler's Pantry. Um, so it's right adjacent to the kitchen. So food was cooked. Um, prepped in the kitchen and then it would have been plated here in the butler's pantry and then after dinner this is where the dishes were done so the butler's pantry was the domain of the butler who was Lawrence Jacobs uh, Lawrence was born in Opelousas and he started working for the Williamses probably soon after they um, moved to their own home in New Orleans up by Audubon Park in the late 1920s um, and he was a highly skilled butler. All of the oral histories from the Williams's friends and family members call him the major dormo. So he ran this, the social aspect of this house. He was also known for making martinis in the way that the general liked them. So we have those on display here in the butler's pantry. The way you make the general's martini is you get a bottle of gin, you pour out what is in the neck, fill that up with vermouth and put it in the fridge and then you have ready to pour martinis. Just as the Williams guests might have, we moved from the dining room into the living room area to hear more about the staff's involvement in the Williams famed dinner parties. So here we are in the Williams's living room, the seat of their formal entertaining. When you were invited to dinner at the Williamses, you showed up at their front door here off of Toulouse Street at 6.30. 6.30 promptly, not before and not after, at 6.30. The general was very strict about the time. So when you came into the door, Ike, the chauffeur, would welcome you. He might take your coat if you had one. And then you would come in here to the living room where Lawrence the butler would offer you usually a pretty strong drink. The living room was filled with family photos and mementos. Prominently displayed on the coffee table was an unusual keepsake that appeared to be a type of ancient iron. I asked about its providence. Lawrence Jacobs, who was their butler, um, may have served in Asia during World War II, and he brought these back, um, according to an oral history, he brought these back as a gift for Leela. And Leela Williams always had just them on display on this coffee table. So it does show that there was a very good relationship between the Williamses and their employees. There's obviously a racial line between them and the way that they were treated, but they did have close feelings to them. So Leela always had these on display. And then Lawrence actually named his youngest daughter Leela after Leela Williams. Considering the 80-plus hours a week that the Williams staff regularly put in, I was curious if they had families of their own. Well, um, Lawrence did have a family. Ike was married uh, to Ruth Chapman, and I haven't found any record of children. But Lawrence uh, was married to Norma, 
uh, Jacobs, and they had at least four children, uh, Lawrence Jr. and three daughters. The youngest daughter was named Leela, after Leela Williams. One of those daughters has come back in the past and toured the Williams residence. And I wish we had gotten an oral history with her while she was here, but it was before I started working here. We learned from her that the Williamses really helped them when they bought their family home, uh, way, way, way uptown. The Williamses paid for their children to go through school. They bought um, the school uniforms and things for Lawrence's children. So we've gotten stories like that as well. Thank you so much for this incredible behind the scenes look at really behind the scenes with the household servants of the Williams family. Thank you. You're welcome. And it's always a work in progress. And we are always learning more about the Williamses and about the people who worked for the Williamses. So even if you've toured the Williams residence in the past, yes, it is still the same house, but there's always new information. That was Lydia Blackmore, Decorative Arts Curator at the Historic New Orleans Collection on Royal Street in New Orleans. Lydia is still actively seeking more information about the Williams staff. If you were related to or knew Ike Chapman, the chauffeur, Lawrence Peter Jacobs or Frank Jacques, the butlers, Lillian Anderson Moore or Bernice Mayfield, the cooks, Beulah Pete, the housemaid, or Lydia Boudreaux, Leela Williams' personal maid, Lydia Blackmore, would love to hear from you. You'll find her email address on our website. Take a tour of the Williams Kemper residence Tuesday through Sunday. Visit hnoc.org for details. Late Michael Mazel Nelson was a historian whose research explored the labor and cultural history of the iconic New Orleans streetcar. He first became fascinated with streetcars as a young boy, riding back and forth to school. Michael struck up conversations with his fellow riders, many of them much older than he. This is how he began to collect streetcar stories, which he later recorded in his documentary of the same name. Streetcar Stories relates the history of the riders while raising many social justice issues as well, helping to illuminate the lives of New Orleans domestic workers and public servants. To bring the history to life in 2010, Louisiana Eats joined Michael for a ride on the oldest continuously operating streetcar in the world. Our conversation began with Michael explaining who historically rode the streetcar. Well, at certain points, everybody rode the streetcars. You know, kids might ride it to school if it wasn't within walking distance. Businessmen would ride downtown. Shoppers would ride downtown. So early in the 20th century, before the automobiles took over, you know, there weren't parking spaces downtown, so people would generally leave their cars at home. Then later on in the 1900s, people started to, to leave the, the streetcar, and the cars took over 
but students, the elderly, uh, working poor, working class, a lot of domestic servants employed in New Orleans, they generally rode the streetcar. So I understand that because so many of the household workers rode the streetcar, that affected the price and even the scheduling. How did that work? Well, of course, there's the, the morning rush hour and afternoon rush hour. But after that, there would often be a movement of, of people generally from the downtown neighborhoods. A lot of domestic workers would board the cars. So around mid-morning, they'd be going to work. And then depending on whether or not they were, uh, they ended up cooking meals, they might be returning after the evening rush hour in the early evening. So how did the domestic workers on the streetcars affect keeping the price so low? Well, because their salaries obviously were, say in one period might be $5, uh, $5 per week, but the tag to that was plus car fare. And so in other words, you had the people who were paying their fares were ones who could afford domestic servants, and many of those people uh, you know, served at one time or another on the board for New Orleans public transit. And so in a sense, this is uh, keeping their own costs low because uh, a large number of riders back and forth were domestic servants. When you were doing your research, I understand you heard some very compelling stories from domestic workers. Tell me one of those tales. Well, a number of things would happen. I mean, domestic workers at that time would wear uniforms, so they were a very visible part. Certain times of the day, you could count on seeing numbers, and after the morning rush hour, there'd be sort of a secondary rush, and in mid-morning, you see people moving generally from downtown neighborhoods to work in homes in the uptown area. And then after the evening rush, there was a, an early evening uh, return of, of those domestic workers who had actually cooked dinners so you might find them carrying some food home to their families. Because that was a typical part of some of their pay. Right, part of it was these, you know, the, the pay was relatively low. The car fare was covered usually by the employer, but it was these, the leftovers. So there would be the smell of dinners that had been had recently uh, wafting through the streetcar. It was common for drivers to make quick stops along the way for a sandwich. I think you've got a story to tell us about a Mardi Gras day sandwich. Right, the, one of the conductorettes I interviewed had to work a double shift on Mardi Gras day or during the Mardi Gras season. And it was late at night and she had pretty much an empty car, but she had two, what she described as society women. And she said, I just was so hungry, I had to stop the car, I ran into Cobb's restaurant and placed an order, got back as quickly as I could, and they were extremely upset with me. They said they were going to report me, and they did, but I just had to get something to eat. What year did segregation on the streetcars end? It ended in May 1958. Could you describe how it was in the days of segregation? Well, it was sort of a, a ritual that everyone in the city learned as children, white children and black children, it had started in 1902, and it started with a literal screen. There was a chicken wire screen that was mounted permanently. That led to all sorts of problems. There was a, an organized boycott of African-Americans that lasted for months. And so you often would see whites crowded into the front of the car and emptiness in the back. But gradually, they adjusted this to a small piece of wood that 
New Orleanians still called a screen. It would read for colored patrons only. So essentially everyone boarded from the rear where the conductor was and whites would walk through the section reserved for blacks and then take a seat in the front. And the ritualistic atmosphere, I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're trying to institute Jim Crow and there's this water fountain is for this race, this is for that one. The, the public space was being renegotiated every ride. So sometimes there were small disturbances, sometimes there were uh, fist fights, people uh, pushed out of the car. So the entire period of Jim Crow was being challenged and resisted on a daily basis by blacks in the city. But technically, they weren't supposed to adjust the screen. But for the sake of convenience, they might see what had to be done, and they'd move the screen, find a place where they could sit. And some of my favorite stories involved the fact that during rush hour, people were crowded together in the aisles, black and white. The phrase one man used was, you know, body pressed against body. But, you know, they, there was nothing they could do about it. But once people started to empty out, Everyone knew that they had to move forward or backward and readjust themselves. So it was like a, a moving civics lesson in Jim Crow. You learn how to behave in public based on that. I mean, Louis Armstrong wrote about that in his autobiography. It's one of the more famous examples of what that did to people. That was Michael Mazel Nelson back in 2010. Sadly, Michael acclaimed historian and streetcar storyteller, passed away in 2014. But his legacy lives on today with every streetcar ride. back from a short break, we'll hear stories about the African-American men and women who have fed our first families, from George Washington's time right through Barack Obama, when the self-described soul food scholar Adrian Miller joins us. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and flaming Bananas Foster with modern Creole cooking by three-time James Beard Award finalist Slade Rushing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. I'm Adrian Miller, the self-described soul food scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. And I am the author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. The White House has always been one of America's most iconic symbols of freedom and democracy. Yet, 
Since the days of our nation's first president, George Washington, the struggle for freedom has been quietly fought with food. Behind the scenes there, African-American cooks, some of them former slaves, have influenced the president's palates and temperaments from behind the White House stoves. Adrian Miller gives us a glimpse into those kitchens and the food that changed America in his book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet. Adrian, I would like to start off by asking you how you came about the concept for this book and why you decided to write it. Well, while I was researching my book on the history of soul food, I read a lot of old newspapers that had been digitized and made available online. And that was a treasure trove of information. And periodically, African Americans who had cooked for our presidents would jump off the page at me while I was reading these old newspapers. So I said, at some point, I got to see if there's enough information out there about these cooks so I can write a fuller story about them, because that's just a perspective on the president presidency that we've never really heard before. Uh, there never was a time without African-Americans in domestic work from Washington <laughs> through today there at the White House. How hard was it for you to uncover these folks? You get all their names in the book. So it was difficult because, for several reasons, in a lot of sources, especially in the uh, 19th century, they really wouldn't give the full names mm-hmm. of these people who worked in the White House. Because why would you? The mm-hmm. social, you know, the, the times didn't call for respect for the heal, full humanity of African Americans. So sometimes they would just say colored cook or Negro cook or servant, or they might give the first name or the last name. So I had to look at several sources just kind of to kind of piece together information. The other thing is there's a code of silence around working in the White House. So there aren't a lot of firsthand accounts of people in the White House telling their story. So I had to rely quite a bit on secondary sources just to kind of pull this all together. Um, But it was really looking at presidential biographies, old newspapers, and other sources just to create that list. Let's go back to Washington's time and discuss the role of the White House steward. And I suppose the the first big name that comes up is Samuel Francis. Yes. Also known as Black Sam. Yes, which is an interesting nickname for him to have. So Samuel Francis is picked as the first presidential steward. And what that means is he was in charge of all of the operations for the residents. So that meant he hired the chef. He oversaw the culinary operations as well as the maids and the butlers. So it was a very important position. Today, the equivalent would be chief usher of the White House. Francis gets this title because Washington met him when he was a general, and he would go frequent Francis's tavern that was in the uh, lower Manhattan in New York. Uh, actually, there's a replica of that tavern that exists to this day. And Washington loved Francis's food and just the way he operated his business. And so he had a lot of trust in him and then eventually picks him to run the residence. And one of Francis's first tasks is uh, he hires a white woman to cook for Washington for the first six months. And evidently her food was nasty because Washington <laughs> had her fired. And he tapped Hercules, who was the enslaved chef from Mount Vernon, to come work in this kitchen. And really from day one, the presidential kitchen has been a multiracial workforce. You've had uh, enslaved African-Americans networking next to indentured whites and sometimes free and free whites and free African-Americans. And so Francis was in charge of all of that. And by all accounts, he did an excellent job. 
But he was a little too extravagant in his tastes, and he ultimately gets fired by Washington for putting the very best on his table much too often. Well, of course, for a long time, right almost to Lincoln, there were slaves working in the White House. There were free yes. people of color. Um, the, the the slaves were sort of lived down in the basement. Absolutely. And what, what what is lost on a lot of people is that the White House kitchen was not a pleasant place to work because uh, it was in the basement, as you said. But uh, during the summer months, actually, sometimes the enslaved cooks would have to stay behind. The Jefferson did that with the two enslaved women who worked for him, Edie Fawcett and, and Francis Hearn. And people would get tropical diseases. The workers in the White House would get tropical diseases like malaria and stuff because the White House is in a reclaimed swamp area. And it shows that a lot of African-American presidential chefs and cooks were accidental. They just happened to either be the longtime enslaved person for a president who decided to bring them to the White House, or they were a longtime family servant. There are very few examples of someone starting their career with the goal of working in the White House kitchen. There were things I learned in the book that really made me cringe, things I hadn't really thought of before. And the fact that from Teddy Roosevelt right through Herbert Hoover, there was an Irish or a Swedish immigrant <laughs> woman in the kitchen yeah. because during the Jim Crow era, it, it's so bizarre that that coincides with the great immigration of Irish and other Europeans who mm -hmm. then become the domestics for the elite and once again, African-Americans get figuratively sent to the back of the bus. Yep. I, I was fascinated by that as well. I did not know that aspect of White House history. And you see this not only in the White House, but in other elite households around the country. And right around the time that Plessy v. Ferguson is enacted, 1896, right around that time, you see a backlash of having African-Americans in service positions, not only in households, but also in restaurants, which is kind of counterintuitive to how we think of Jim Crow, because I thought the whole point was to have African-Americans as kind of the servant class. So the fact that African-Americans were getting pushed out of even those jobs was a big surprise to me. And to me, and yeah, too. That, that string lasts for a long time. Actually, it goes through Herbert Hoover, and it wasn't until when Franklin Roosevelt comes in the White House that black cooks start to have a dominant role again. Well, I was also fascinated that in the time before Air Force One, of course, the presidents traveled by train. Tell us about how that went with the presidents and how the first Pullman dining car actually was called the president. Yes. There wasn't an official White House dining car that would travel with the president. So what would happen is when the president would go someplace, the railroad president would just lend them, the president, their own private dining car, which often had names like Presidente Coronado, you know, other things. And so along with that dining car would be the best chef for that railroad. And presidents had their favorite routes and trains that they would travel. So some of these railroad cooks got to know our presidents quite well. And I wrote about one cook who actually served uh, President Garfield all the way to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and remembered kind of the favorite dishes of all those presidents, which I thought was amazing. Now, I do begin my book with a funny story about President Taft. And the interesting thing about him is he was taking a midnight train 
to Ohio. And after the train left the railroad station in Washington, D.C., he asked the conductor if there was a dining car attached, and there wasn't. So he made the train stop off in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and have a dining car attached so that he could grub on some mutton chops or some lamb chops at midnight. Well, they, they, they had all rationalized that he'd had a good dinner and he'd have breakfast in the morning when he arrived, <laughs> but they didn't count the midnight munchies with Taft. They did not. <laughs> and the only reason this happened, I'm convinced, is because the first lady and the White House physician were not on the train. So they couldn't enforce his diet. Well, that has a lot to do with the whole story of the presidents and the cooks because they all have wicked things that they're not supposed to eat that they've got to cajole the cook into sneaking to them almost. Mm-hmm. And the cooks are caught in the middle because their ultimate boss is the president, but their immediate boss is often the first lady. And the first lady is often saying, don't give them that. <laughs> and then you've got the president saying, I want that. <laughs> so usually they wait till the first lady's not around to hook them up. One other funny story, Daisy Bonner, how she would get around that is they, the physician or the first lady would tell them what to make for the president. So they would make it and they would bring it to him. And as they were setting it down, they would whisper in his ear, don't eat that. And so he would just play around with his food and fake like he's not hungry. And then once everybody had cleared out they'd take him back in the kitchen and hook him up with what he really wanted. Of course, then we had President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And his cook, Zephyr Wright, was very instrumental in helping the president end segregation in the United States. Mm -hmm. What did Zephyr Wright do for LBJ? So Zephyr Wright, she's probably the most fascinating character in the book to me. And if there was any one cook that I want to meet, it would be her. She was a longtime cook for the Johnsons um, before he actually entered Congress. And as he rose in position in Congress, she would stay with the family in Washington and then go back with them to Texas. And they drove in those times. And in the rides to and fro from Texas, she would experience a lot of indignities because of Jim Crow. She couldn't go into restaurants. She couldn't go to uh, the restroom and any time with the family. It got so bad that she said, I'm no longer taking that trip. So when Johnson becomes president and he's carrying on the civil rights legacy of the recently slain President Kennedy, uh, as he lobbied for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he would often use the anecdotes of Zephyr Wright's experiences to pressure congressmen to support that bill. Once it passed, he used one of the pens for signing the legislation. He gave it to Zephyr Wright and said, you deserve this as much as anyone. Well, that says a mouthful. And, and God bless Zephyr Wright and the role that she played in changing America. And America changes with the presidents. Yes. This book really shows that these African-Americans were culinary artists, family confidants, and at times civil rights advocates who gave our presidents a window on black life that they might not have otherwise had. Adrian, thank you so much for your inspiring work, and I hope to see you right here in New Orleans sometime soon. Oh, from your lips to God's ears, but thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> thank you, Adrian. <laughs> All right, peace. Adrian Miller author of The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of African-Americans who have fed our first families.
What was the most unlikely soul food ever served to Winston Churchill at the White House? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? We've just posted a new one that's very bean-centric. It includes a Beans Around the World cooking demonstration with Chef Alain Shia and interviews about the importance of the humble bean with world food leaders like Rick Bayless and Raj Patel. Bean the change you want to see in the world. Just go to poppytooker.com and click on the Quick Bites podcast link. It's delicious. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What was the most unlikely soul food ever served to Winston Churchill at the White House? It seems that during his presidential tenure, our 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, developed quite a love for pig's feet. Just after the United States entered World War II, Winston Churchill arrived for a three-week visit, which included Christmas of 1941. During his stay, FDR shared his favorite treat with Mr. Churchill, pig's feet, broiled, split, and buttered. FDR's Georgia-born cook, Daisy McAfee Bonner, cooked his favorite sweet and sour pig's feet, and purportedly, although polite, Mr. Churchill declined a second helping. Food figured largely in FDR's life right until the very end. In 1945, Daisy Bonner was just taking a cheese souffle out of the oven intended for FDR's lunch when word came of his impending death. According to Daisy Bonner, the cheese souffle didn't fall until the president breathed his last breath. If you're not convinced that FDR loved his pig's feet, head on down to Warm Springs, Georgia. There, at his personal retreat, known as the Little White House, they preserved a shopping list from the last week of the president's life. On it is listed four hog's feet. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
Dr. Rudy Lombard was a man of principle who believed in equality. As a civil rights activist in New Orleans, Rudy staged a sit-in at McCrory's lunch counter, an act of civil disobedience that led to the landmark Supreme Court case, which ended segregation in restaurants. Lombard versus Louisiana. My friend Rudy Lombard passed away in 2014, but in crafting this episode, I knew his would be an important voice to include. You see, much of Rudy's activism was spurred by his personal experience as the child of the housekeeper and cook at the uptown residence of prominent New Orleanians. Let's hear Rudy's story in his own voice. Now, take us back to those days of the lunch counter sit-ins. What propelled you into action? I think for me, my mother cooked for one of the wealthy families in New Orleans. It was the Stewart, John Stewart family. They lived on the corner of Dryads and Napoleon, across the street from one of the better-known restaurants, Manali's. And when I was a kid, I used to accompany my mother to work. But I was curious as hell about what went on at Manali's. And uh, sort of resolved that one of these days I was going to go in that restaurant. And I knew then as a kid that blacks were not allowed to go. Of course, everybody in my family including my father, who had gone to cooking school on the GI Bill, knew how to cook. But my mother was so terrific that he wouldn't dare go near the kitchen when she was alive. He worked at the, what they call the Marine Hospital up on Nashville. That was a place that catered to merchant seamen. And he worked the graveyard shift. So he came home in the mornings about 7 o'clock, and all of his friends gathered in the kitchen, and of course my mother had food for them. Year in and year out, sometimes my mother would cook three meals a day before she started working full-time for you know, the various white families as a domestic. So she was a gourmet cook because of the time she spent in the Garden District cooking for John Stewart's family and so forth. In that very wealthy neighborhood, most of the people who did the cooking were blacks. The men were waiters and chauffeurs and so forth. So most of the cooks at that time were, were women. So I got to see all of these extraordinary people who were cooking in the back of the house, so to speak. And it stayed with me. So how did you end up at the lunch counter? Well, I was a longshoreman. <clears throat> I had spent a year at the University of Michigan. I found out that my parents could, really couldn't afford for me to go there. I didn't have a scholarship. So I had to figure out a way to come back home without telling them I had discovered that the tuition cost more money than they were making. So I told them I wanted to be president of the International Longshoremen's Union here, the black one, because the, the union was segregated. And that was my ambition until 1960 when four students from North Carolina A&T had a sit-in at the Woolworths Lunch Counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, and that changed everything. 
And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's never going to happen here because the police were too mean-spirited and they would just, you know, cause a lot of violence and Mm -hmm. stuff. I wasn't wrong about that. But the Congress of Racial Equality had taken into their employ some of the students who got kicked out of Southern University mm-hmm. because they had a demonstration where they simply marched around the Capitol in Baton Rouge. And even at Southern University, that wasn't allowed. No, they got expelled. But one of them, a guy named Marvin Robinson, became a staff member. They called him field secretaries at the time for the Congress of Racial Equality. And uh, to make a long story short, he introduced me to a wonderful man by the name of James T. McCain, Core hired him and sent him to New Orleans, and he came here and helped us organize a local core chapter. That's the acronym for the Congress, Congress of, of Racial Race. Equality. It's core. Right. So we decided that in the coming September mm-hmm. of 1960, we would do a sit-in downtown. The first one we did was at Woolworth on the corner of Canal and uh, Rampart. And the second week, we didn't have but four other students left. I was the spokesman for the first one, and we sat in at the lunch counter at McCrory's. And myself, Aretha Haley, Cecil Carter, and a white student from Tulane by the name of Lanny Goldfinch. So uh, what happened? What happened when you all went in and took Well, the they asked us to leave, and when we refused, they arrested us. They accused us of criminal trespassing and so forth and so on. And the case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And my name got attached to the case that involved the other students and myself. And the ruling was that it was unconstitutional to discriminate against people on the basis of race in a place of public accommodations. The difference in the situation was that the mayor insisted that blacks not be served in those places of public accommodation. Who was that mayor? Uh, Chet Morrison. And as a result, ultimately, the United States Supreme Court said, well, this wasn't an issue of private property because if the mayor insisted on, you know, that the local codes be enforced, which were not on the books so much, but it was the tradition of not serving blacks and whites in places of public accommodation. The fact that he insisted on us being arrested and being denied service made it a case that took it out of the realm of, say, private property and made it a public action. So his involvement made it such that the court ruled this was not an issue of public accommodation, but state action in effect. That was, There were five cases that were heard at the same time. So it made it possible for blacks and whites to go to the same places, restaurants, hotels, whatever, whatever. So what did your parents think about this? My parents were very supportive. My father was very, what people might call, you know, politically radical from those days. And my mother, you know, my mother loved her children. So the only concern she had was, you know, about our personal, physical safety. And she would come around to see if I was okay, but she wouldn't say anything. She'd she'd take off from work, check it out, see if I was fine, then she'd go home. (laughs) 
civil rights activist, Rudy Lombard. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcast and also pre-order my latest book, The Pascal's Manali Cookbook, debuting this fall. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the site. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>